Well, you may have noticed, if you were here last week, that the liturgy in the bulletin that Cherie led us through is still our Easter liturgy. Did anybody pick up on that? Well, that's not a typo. That's not an oversight, because it's actually still Easter. Uh, if you did not grow up in a very liturgical church tradition, Easter is like one week, it's one and done, and then you kind of move on. You know, all this hype around it, and then boom, it's over. We move on to the next thing, but in the liturgical church throughout time and all around the world, Easter is not just a day, but it's 50 days. So Lent, we had an amazing Lent this year at Christ City. Amazing it was hard and it was difficult as we fasted together and as we leaned into the walk with Jesus, the journey with Jesus to the cross. But it was amazing because many of you, I've heard from you how you were prepared for the feasting and celebration of Easter in a new way this year as we leaned into the season of Lent. Lent is 40 days, a season of fasting. Easter is 50 days, greater in every way than the season of Lent, and it's a season of feasting. So you can still be excited that Jesus has risen. Um, we have lots more Sundays of Easter to celebrate together. And then every Sunday is a Resurrection Sunday for the church, gathering to worship together. So we're, um, we're actually in a sermon series as we continue to look at the life and ministry of Jesus. We're in a sermon series called The Resurrection of Jesus, where for five weeks we're just going to look through uh, really slowly this, this narrative in Luke, Luke's narrative, Luke's account of the resurrection, Luke 24. We're going to spend five weeks just walking through Luke chapter 24. So because Easter's not over, because it's still Easter, I encourage you in the same way that you did for Lent through fasting to lean into Easter through feasting. One way that you can do that, reading a book may not sound like feasting to you, but be open-minded with me for a moment. One way that you can do that is by reading this book, and it'll help you think about resurrection in a new and fresh and deeper way than you ever have before. It's a book called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. We have some copies at the book table for you. Uh, they're only $10 cheaper than Amazon, and you can have it today and walk home and start to lean into Easter, okay? So grab this book, and then I encourage you to find other ways that you can feast, maybe by intentionally spending time with friends and enjoying meals together and celebrating and um, enjoying the gifts, the life that we have because of Jesus. Resurrection life is now. We're going to talk about, I don't need to get ahead of myself. <laughs> um, so lean into that. Let's feast and celebrate that Jesus is alive, okay? So this, this week, we find ourselves in verses 9 through 12, in Luke's account of the resurrection in Luke 24. And we need to get the fuller story so we can fully embrace and lean into what's happening in these verses. And so let's just look at the story again. We looked at it last week. Robin walked us through it on Easter Sunday, the resurrection story in Luke 24. Um, let's just do an overview, a bird's, bird's eye look again. Um, is that okay? It's the, most, it's the most significant story, I think, throughout all of human history. So it's worth looking at again, okay? So if you remember on Friday, on Good Friday, we say it in the creeds like the Apostles' Creed that Jesus was died and was buried. Jesus was died, Jesus died on a cross and then he was buried in a tomb. 
and a stone was rolled in front of the tomb, a very heavy stone, which is significant because the rulers of the day had heard all these stories and this, these rumors that Jesus was the Messiah and he was actually going to rise from the dead. And so they wanted to do everything that they could to prevent followers of Jesus fabricating these sort of resurrected Messiah myths. And so they rolled this tremendously heavy stone in front of the tomb. In Matthew's account of the resurrection, Matthew tells us that the rulers of the day even stationed a guard at the tomb to make sure that nothing happened, that nobody came and tried to fabricate any sort of myths around this man. The next day on Saturday, the people rested because as Jews, it was their Sabbath, Saturday. And then the next morning, on the third day, on Sunday, we see several women going to the tomb with spices, which tells us that they don't anticipate at all, they have no imagination for what's to come. They have spices to anoint the body with, to preserve the body. The women are going to the tomb fully expecting to see a dead body. Now, Luke tells us that it was a handful of women. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and others with them. So there are probably several women. We see from Mark's report of the resurrection in Mark 16 that there is a woman named Salome, which is a Hebrew name, beautiful name. Uh, it comes from the Hebrew word shalom for peace. So it's all these women going to the tomb together to anoint the dead body of Jesus. And as they're approaching the tomb, they're wondering together, who's going to remove this heavy stone for us? How are we going to get into the tomb to anoint the dead body of Jesus? And as they're a long way off, they see that the stone had been rolled away. Now imagine, put yourself in the shoes of these women. Imagine the confusion and the fear that they would be feeling as they approached the tomb, the stones rolled away, wondering what has happened. And then Luke tells us, and all the gospel writers tell us, that they enter into the tomb and they find that it's empty. Jesus is not there. This dead body that they were anticipating seeing was gone. Again, imagine, imagine the fear that they'd be feeling. And Luke tells us that while they were wondering about these things, they're taken aback, feeling all these different things, feeling overwhelmed, maybe wondering in their heads, trying to calculate, what are, what are we going to do from here? What's next? What do we do? While they were wondering about these things, two men showed up who were dressed in clothes that were like lightning. Two men, messengers, angels, sent from God. Now, the women, all the gospel writers tell us, were terrified, as they should be. Every time humans interact with angels in Scripture, they're filled and overcome with fear, which is totally understandable, right? Consider how overwhelmed these women would have been. Three days before, they had experienced 
intense and immense trauma in experiencing and witnessing this violent death of not only a man, but a man whom they loved deeply, who they followed, who they committed their life to, they experienced and witnessed his violent death. Trauma like that will stick with you for a long time. And now three days later, they see that the tomb is empty. They're worried. What Did grave robbers come and steal the body of our Lord? They're overcome probably with fear about this man that we served, Jesus, was killed for insurrection. So what's going to happen to us as his followers? Are they going to come after us as well? All these different things, this turbulent emotional roller coaster. At this point, Robin said this last week, and it's true, I would have just tapped out, right? Like, okay, now these terrifying men are here in the empty tomb with me, and I'm just done. I can't handle it anymore. In fact, the men in the story, the male disciples, had already sort of tapped out, right? Peter, Peter denied Jesus three times and fled. They all, during the crucifixion event, are fleeing and running away. And then we know, we're going to see in a minute, that they're all in hiding. They're hiding out together. What's going to happen to us? Are they going to come for us next? So the men had tapped out. The women display incredible emotional perseverance, and somehow stay present. And it's in their being present that God meets them in a really powerful way, which I think is a story for us, a lesson for us. Maybe uh, unpack that on another day. It's in their being present with all that's going on that God meets them and changes them in a powerful and dramatic way. And so these two men speak and they give these women the most world-changing, life-transforming, happy and glad news that creation had ever heard up to this point. Which sounds like an exaggeration. Sounds kind of like I'm using preacher hyperbole. But I really think that it's true. The angels speak these words to the women. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Jesus is alive. The dead man you are looking for is not dead. Jesus is alive. He is not here. He has risen. And then the angels remind the women of all these things that Jesus had taught them when he was with them. The angels say, remember, don't you remember how when he was with you, he told you, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and then on the third day be raised again. In another resurrection narrative in the book of Matthew, the angel also says this, Go quickly, go quickly and tell his disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so Mark tells us, we're weaving together all these different resurrection narratives to get the story, the account of what happened. Mark tells us that the women went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. This is, kind of, this is a side note, but that's actually how Mark's gospel ends. For fear and astonishment had seized them. Boom, the end. Close the book. Wow. 
So the angels tell them, go, tell the disciples what has happened, and they flee from the empty tomb for fear and astonishment had pleased them. Other gospel accounts tell us that on their way back to where the disciples were, they actually met Jesus. They encountered the risen Lord. John, the book of John gives us this beautiful story of Mary Magdalene encountering Jesus and mistaking him for the gardener, thinking that he was the gardener. But then when Jesus speaks her name, she recognizes him for who he is. Who else speaks my name like that? This must be my Savior and Lord Jesus. And so the women run back to tell the apostles. Um, Luke tells us in Luke 24, verse 9, that they told these things to the eleven and to all the others. So imagine this, paint this picture in your head with me. So the women run back, they go into a room, and it's actually filled with people. Luke mentions the 11, the 12 disciples, minus Judas. But there are others with them as well. We see next week we'll look at a story of two men on the road to Emmaus who meet with Jesus. One's named Cleopas, and we don't know the name of the other. So those two men are in the room. But then in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, look at this verse. This is post-ascension. So Jesus had spent days with his disciples in his resurrected body, and then he had, had ascended to be, with the, to be with God, the right hand of God. Luke tells us in the book of Acts, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So there are probably, scholars suggest, everybody's kind of on the same page about this, there are probably over 100 people in the room when the women come back with this world-changing good news to announce to them. So the women tell the men this news, all of the male disciples, all of the followers of Jesus, and as we'll unpack in just a minute, their story seems to the men like nonsense, like idle tales, like foolishness. And so they don't believe them. But then we see, I love this picture of Peter. In Peter we see this sort of glimmer of hope. And he runs away from the room. There's lots of running. There's lots of urgency happening in all the resurrection narratives. Luke runs to the tomb, and he himself also witnesses that the tomb is empty. And then our text for this week ends on a cliffhanger. It says about Peter in verse 12 that Peter left the tomb wondering to himself what had happened. Could this story be true? Is Jesus alive? There's a glimmer of hope, wondering to himself what had happened. We're spending five weeks unpacking this story. And Easter is not just a day, but 50 days. And every single Sunday, the church around the world gathers to worship a resurrected Jesus. And here's why we're doing this. Here's why we're walking through these verses really slowly for five weeks, looking at the resurrection accounts of Jesus. Because the resurrection is not just a happy ending to the tragic story that happened on Good Friday. The resurrection is not just a happy ending to the tragic story that took place on Good Friday. The resurrection is 
the most important, the central event in all of human history. It's the central, most essential component of our Christian faith that we cling to and we have hope in and we hold on to because in the resurrection, new creation is bursting forth into earth. Heaven is not just some future thing that we look forward to that maybe one day we'll be whisked away and spend time like kind of floating on clouds with wings sprouting out of our back. Heaven, that, that's not, heaven's not this future, distant, weird reality. In the resurrection, we see that heaven is here now. Heaven is moving forward in creation, new creation, bursting forth in the resurrected body of Jesus. Death does not reign but Jesus reigns, and life is here. The book of John we talked a lot about in a former sermon series on the I Am statements. Life is here. Jesus talks a lot about life, and it's not this, this future life. It's a life here and now, abundant life that we can taste and enjoy, and resurrection life is here in Jesus. And so there are a, there are a million implications for resurrection you could spend every minute of every day for the rest of your life just thinking and feeling and digging into resurrection and you'll never reach its end. There are so many implications for us. Maybe we'll unpack a few of them during the next few weeks. This morning, I just want to unpack one implication of the resurrection, and it's this. Think about this. In chronological order of all the resurrection narratives and all four Gospels, in chronological order, the very first implication of the resurrection that we encounter is a radical reversal of the values of the first century world. Because it's women who discover the empty tomb. It's women who hear the announcements from God's messengers, from angels, that Jesus was not dead, but he was alive. He had risen. It's women who are commissioned to go back and tell the disciples this good news. It's women who are the first to encounter the resurrected Jesus. And it's women who actually are faithful to the call from God and do go back, even at risk to themselves, at being laughed at and scoffed at, who do announce the good news of the resurrected men. Suddenly, in this first century Roman Jewish world, we see that it's the voiceless who are given not only a voice, but a strong and influential and important voice. It's the powerless who are empowered, who are given strength. The very first implication of the resurrection is a radical reversal of the values of the first century world. So, this week I've been meditating on this, and I invite you to meditate with me this morning, and I really just want to lay out for you three reflections that have kept coming to mind as I've meditated on this really significant reality. 
So three reflections I want to invite you to consider with me this morning. Reflection number one is that this story validates the reality of the resurrection. This story validates the reality of the resurrection. If you're someone who hasn't quite bought into Jesus yet, if you're skeptical of all these things we talk about as Christians, um, first of all, I'll say that I'm really glad you're here. I hope that Christ City, that our community, that our worship gatherings on Sunday can be a really welcoming and hospitable place for you. Thanks for being here. It takes a lot of courage for you to be here, so thank you. Um, And if you're skeptical about Jesus and Christianity, one thing that is probably a hurdle for you, if it's not a hurdle, maybe it should be a hurdle, is all this talk about resurrection. Like a dead person, a dead person who claimed to be God, who claimed to be Yahweh, coming back to life. Like if that's a hurdle for you, I get it. That's a really strange thing. And we talk about it every week, and we say that it's the most important thing, and we base our entire life on it, and we come around the table every week and say that this is his broken body and this is his blood. Like, those are strange things. I get that. But I invite you to wrestle, to wrestle, because it's really clear, and we can't deny, that something significant happened in that first century world outside of Jerusalem. Now, most of you probably aren't wrestling with Jesus, right? Because we're in Memphis, we're in the southeast, we're in the buckle of the Bible belt. And most of you, like me, you grew up in church. And you grew up hearing these stories. And for you, they're not fanciful, strange, foreign sort of things, but they're really just normal. Of course Jesus died for me. Of course Jesus died rose from the dead. But here's what I would say to you. You too need to wrestle and grapple with these things that you say you believe. Because the resurrection of Jesus is not normal. Amen? The resurrection of Jesus is not normal. And when you normalize the resurrection of Jesus, you devalue the resurrection of Jesus. So for most of you who just like sort of blindly buy into this, like of course Jesus rose from the dead, I challenge you too, it will be good for you for the next 50 days, maybe the next 50 years, to examine all of the facts, all the details, and to lean into these stories and to embrace for yourself a risen Lord. Not just to take the risen Lord that your parents gave you or that your tradition gave you, but to embrace for yourself Jesus as your risen Lord. So as we wrestle with the resurrection and the strange reality that it is, this is one of a thousand details that can validate that something significant really did happen that deserves a lot of our attention Because, let me show you this, in the first century world for a Jew, it does not make any sense that if the disciples were fabricating a myth, that they would fabricate it in this way. Because in this first century world, as you probably know, women had very little to no rights. Let me show you, there's a verse in Deuteronomy 19, it's called, The Law of Witnesses. 
where God through Moses is giving all these rules for how society should work, how we should function, how Israel should function, and he's laying out what, what court and what witnesses and all those things, what law and order looks like. And in Deuteronomy 19, Moses writes this, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That sounds good, the law of witnesses. But throughout Jewish history, there, there's all sorts of commentary on this verse. And there's all sorts of additions to the law of witnesses. Let me show you one example from Josephus, who was a first century Jewish scholar and historian, a Jewish man. And this is the commentary that he gave on Luke 19, verse 15. From women, let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and temerity of their sex. It's a sad, tragic reality that in the first century world, women were not allowed to be witnesses in a law of court because they were viewed as unstable and unreliable. It's a sad reality. But the disciples here, all four gospel accounts of the resurrection have women functioning as witnesses to the central, the most important event in human history. This would have been, and it was, a tremendous hurdle that kept many people in the early centuries of few centuries after the death and resurrection of Jesus from embracing these stories. This would have been a tremendous hurdle, and this would have never been a way that you would fabricate a story. In fact, we see this in the response of all the disciples and all the followers of Jesus, these hundred plus people who are gathered in a room, when these women come back and announce this good news and tell them this story, it says they don't believe them because the words of the women seemed to them like nonsense. The Greek word behind the word nonsense is a strange word that only shows up once in all of the New Testament. Their account, their story of what had happened to Jesus seemed to the men like nonsense, like idle tales, like a fairy tale, like strange stories, like fake news. Uh, which on the one hand tells us how ridiculous the resurrection is. Like it should be something, like I said, that we have to wrestle with and that's kind of hard to buy into because dead people just don't come back to life. But it also shows us how little these men thought of the testimony of the women. And so the writers of the Gospels who are writing down these stories about Jesus, they don't take time to like, clean it up so that it could be more believable to the world in which they found themselves. They just want to really quickly get the story out, exactly what happened. 
Mark's gospel is the earliest gospel account of Jesus that came out. Um, we have early manuscripts that show us from the 60s AD, just a few decades after Jesus rose from the dead. The gospel writers just wanted to get these stories out. They just wanted to share what happened. They wanted to hastily and speedily, but not carelessly, tell the stories of the resurrection. In fact, um, one, of the most res- one of the most important resurrection accounts in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul wrote us. Um, and you can look at that resurrection account later. Paul's writing after the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke at least. And you see that the presence of women isn't there. But these gospel writers didn't try to clean it up to make it more palatable for their first century world. They wanted to tell exactly what happened. So we have to consider and wrestle with that something significant happened in the first century world. Second reflection is that this story launches the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. This story launches the upside-down kingdom of Jesus Consider with me this big theological concept that God is sovereign. I believe that God is God and God is sovereign. And if God is sovereign, that means that he's intentional and purposeful. That the details of this story are no accident. If God is sovereign, God could have had the Apostle Peter discovered the empty tomb of Jesus. But God, in his sovereignty, in his purposefulness, in his intentionality, weaving together all the details of this story, have a handful of women uncovering the empty tomb, meeting the angel, commissioned to go tell the men, seeing the risen Jesus, announcing this good news of the resurrected Jesus. And it only makes sense when you consider all the stories of Jesus because Jesus is always talking about this kingdom that is here, that he's bringing. And he talks about the kingdom in really weird ways because we see that the kingdom that Jesus talks about, the kingdom that Jesus has has brought into our world is a kingdom where the poor are the blessed ones where the greatest citizens are its lowliest citizens, where weakness is a value, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, no woman, no man, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. We see a kingdom that's not led and ruled by a vicious tyrant, but we, we see a kingdom whose king came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Where the lowly, where the low, where the last are actually the first. Where death does not have the last word, but there's life even in the midst of of death, even where there seems to be no hope. Jesus has come to bring 
an upside-down kingdom where all the natural ways that we think about the world and how the world works are flipped upside down and turned on their head. The values that the world have completely undone, completely overturned. And so when you think about this kingdom that Jesus came to bring, of course, doesn't it make sense that the kingdom would be inaugurated in this way? with the voiceless being given a strong and important voice, with the powerless being empowered. It's an upside-down kingdom. Consider this. It was an upside-down kingdom then, and throughout church history, it's been an upside-down kingdom. We, as Christians and kind of theology talk, we say that we hold on to the essentials of our faith, the core components of the Christian faith, because of, quote, the apostolic witness. Because the apostles were witnesses to these things that took place. And they wrote them down and told stories, and all these things have been passed down through the generations, through church history, through church tradition, so that we can know that these things really took place because of the apostolic witness, because of the witness of the apostles. But the witness of the apostles hinges completely on the witness of these women. In fact, some of the earliest church fathers called Mary Magdalene the apostle to the apostles. The apostle to the apostles. This is an upside-down kingdom that Jesus has brought into the world, this new creation kingdom that's bursting forth, this life that we can taste, not in some distant future reality, but now. There's an upside-down kingdom growing in our midst. Which brings me to our last reflection. And it's this, that this story empowers the powerless. This story empowers the powerless. So Christianity, the primitive church, the church in the first century and even the second century, Christianity wasn't the religion of the powerful or the elite. Christianity sprung up out of this like, small sect of Judaism, and it was a religion of the minority of the day. The ones who were viewed by the culture around them as powerless and unimportant. The primitive church in early Christianity was the faith of those who were living on the margins. But in the 300s, you know that Constantine was converted and became a Christian, and then Christianity became the official faith of the Roman Empire. And all of a sudden, Christianity became not only a religion of the marginalized, but a religion of the elite as well, which in and of itself is not a wrong thing. It's not a bad thing. But on the heels of MLK 50, I'd propose to you that the way that it's been abused and used throughout the ages is a wrong thing. It is a wicked thing. It's a sinful thing. The way Christianity has been used to hold people down 
instead of allow people in nature, in light of the resurrection, to rise up. The way that Christianity has been used, the way that our Bible, the Word of God, has been used to justify wicked institutions like slavery and racism to our day. The abuse of Christianity, the abuse of these things by the elite, by the culturally powerful to keep people down is wicked and is wrong. Listen to what Howard Thurman, um, in this really important book he wrote called Jesus and the Disinherited, again on the heels of MLK 50, um, it's been said that Martin Luther King Jr., everywhere that he went, took with him this book, Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. And he says this, Too often, the price exacted by society for security and respectability is that the Christian movement in its formal expression must be on the side of the strong against the weak. And so because of that, because of how the Christian faith and God's word has been used and abused for centuries and centuries in favor of the strong and against the weak, people who are on the margins often find themselves wondering, is Jesus a God for me? Does Jesus have anything to say to me? Because it seems like he only favors those who are ahead of me or above me. Thurman says it this way in his book, to those who need profound succor and strength to enable them to live in the present with dignity and creativity, Christianity often has been sterile and of little avail. Which is the exact opposite of the message of the resurrection. Which is the exact opposite of the message of this Jesus that we've been encountering for the last several months as we've looked at stories around him and examined his preaching and his teaching because we see that Jesus is on the side of the weak and Jesus is on the side of the marginalized. Jesus, we see in this story in Luke 24 and we see all through the gospel accounts, Jesus is on the side of the voiceless. So, if you're someone who knows what it's like to be on the margins, if you're someone who knows what it's like not to have a voice and to feel weak, lowly, despised, you need to hear this morning. The message of Jesus is that you matter and that Jesus is for you, and Jesus cares deeply about you. And on the other hand, those of us who don't know what it's like to be on the margins, who have had society work in their favor from the day that they've been born, those of us, those of you who are like me, as a white man, we need to learn to be okay with lowering ourselves so that others can be raised up. I need to be okay, and if you are like me, you need to be okay 
with taking the back seat, knowing that for your entire life, you've had the front seat to yourself. We have to be willing to have these conversations, to be honest, to talk about all the feelings you have right now in this moment. Because this week, as I've been meditating and I've looked at these verses, as I've looked at the incredible role of women in the resurrection story of Jesus, I've been so blown away in a fresh way with how Jesus, with how this story empowers the powerless. And isn't this the message of the apostles? Because they were willing to give us this story, even at great risk to themselves, knowing people aren't going to buy into this, but we have to speak truth. We're willing to lower ourselves. We're willing to take the back seat. We're willing to give the credit away so that this story can go forward. And isn't this the story of Jesus himself? Who didn't come, once again, like I said, as a powerful ruler, as a cultural elite, but who came as a humble servant. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, Paul writes in Philippians 2, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking on the form of a servant and being found in human form, he humbled himself and he lowered himself as low as he could go even to the point of death. And not just any death, but he lowered himself and lowered himself and lowered himself all the way to the most vicious and gruesome and humiliating and terrifying form of death that the world at the time knew, death on a cross. It's the story of Jesus and it's the gospel. It's our story too. That we were powerless. That you were powerless. Unable to do anything to save yourself. To change your condition. But Jesus loved you. And Jesus pursued you. And Jesus has lifted you up in the resurrection. God doing for us what we were unable to do for ourselves. The gospel of grace. So, I'll close this way. There is resurrection life to be had right now. It's right in front of us. It's in our midst. Heaven is here breaking out on earth. God's space invading our space. New creation springing forward. Don't you want to taste resurrection life now? Don't you want to taste it? I think we taste it in the comfort that this brings, that you matter. No matter what the world around you says about you, you matter, and that can be deeply comforting and moving. And we can taste resurrection life more and more, Christ City Church, and here in Memphis and around the world as people like me, if we're able to humble ourselves, follow the path of our Savior who humbled himself, became a servant, then we can enjoy more and more resurrection life here and now. Let's pray.
Lord, what good news it is that Jesus, you are alive. Help us to see and help us to begin to wrap our hearts around how this changes absolutely everything. And Lord, would you, considering this story this morning, in Luke's account of the resurrection, would you wow us and overwhelm us with the upside-down nature of this story? And would we experience great comfort? And would we also experience great challenge? And Lord, it's my prayer for Christ City Church, for each person gathered in this room, for myself, that we would enjoy and know resurrection life now, here and now. We're hungry for you, Jesus. We're greedy for you. Give us the courage to go through the hard work to taste more and more of this here and now. In our resurrected Lord Jesus' name we pray. Amen.